This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. The Durham Report. Barack Obama spied on President Donald Trump, knowing he was innocent. Communist China announces what it is willing to do to conquer democratic Taiwan. Stories from the brand new edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. And a discussion about a railroad. These stories and more on today's Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to the Friday edition of Trumpet Hour Week in Review. And hello to those of you who are able to join us on the Wednesday edition of the show. If you were able, you were treated to the return of Trumpet Hour creator and Philadelphia Trumpet Managing Editor Joel Hilliker. It was good to have him back after he handed off the show to Jeremiah Jacques, who is here in the studio, as he is every Friday, to deliver us our weekly Asia update and to me. And uh, Mr. Hilker previewed the brand new edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. Uh, that's in yesterday's Trumpet Brief. And uh, he highlighted his article, which solves the mystery, really, of why America's will is broken. So if you'd like to hear that, you still can, obviously, at uh, kpcg.fm or thetrumpet.com. You can listen to the Wednesday edition of Trumpet Hour, but this is the Friday edition. So we have with us our panel, as I mentioned, Jeremiah Jacques. Great to be with you. Andrew Miller. Hello. And Josue Michels. Good morning. These men are here in the studio with me and joining us from England is Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. We start off this week with news from the Anglo-America region watched by Andrew Miller. Yeah, big week in the Anglo-America region. Uh, in South Africa, the national power company is warning people to prepare for their worst ever blackouts. Uh, illegal border crossings in the United States have spiked from 6,000 per day to 11,000 per day now that Title 42 has expired. Uh, and the Illinois legislature has just passed a new bill into law allowing unrestricted access to sexually explicit material in libraries. So those are big stories. What is the biggest story that you want us to focus on from the Anglo-America region? Yeah, the biggest story this week is some shocking new information, actually about kind of an old story. Uh, we finally had, uh, actually this happened l late last week, about the time we were recording this program on uh, last Friday, the Durham report was, uh, was released, 306 pages of it. Uh, so some pretty big blockbuster stuff in there uh we'd been uh <laughs> i'd seen plenty of political jokes over the the time about just how slow that report was in coming uh bill barr uh the former attorney general appointed durham to do this report before trump uh left office and he's been uh he's been gone for a couple of years now so it's been slow coming but definitely uh worth the wait uh, I'll dig a, a little bit more into the substance of it, but just to bring everybody up to speed, I think we can just play a, a clip from uh, Jesse Waters over at Fox News. Fox News alert. It only took four years, but the Durham report has finally dropped. And he found out what everybody already knew. The whole Trump-Russia collusion story was a giant hoax started by Democrats. The FBI knew it was a hoax. The CIA knew it was a hoax. And Barack Obama knew it was a hoax. 
Everybody knew it was a hoax the whole time, but they acted like it was real. The CIA knew Hillary started the Russia collusion story and then went in and told Barack Obama all about it, that she was trying to link Trump with Russia to distract from her email scandal. Yeah, so uh, Jesse Waters, pretty much he summarized that there for what you just heard that is like basically the biggest thing from this report is that the the entire Trump-Russia collusion hoax was uh, a gigantic scam, uh, which we knew, uh, but also the <laughs> the people pushing it knew it was a scam. This report, it's got information from Peter Strzok, who was the um, the lead investigator into the Trump-Russia collusion uh, before Robert Mueller took over. And so we've got internal documents from him admitting there was never any evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. Uh, we've got internal documents that... Uh, that John Brennan, the CIA director, he knew that as well. And Barack Obama knew that, like Jesse Waters said, it's like everybody, everybody knew that from the beginning, uh, that this was a, a giant nothing burger, <laughs> but they uh, proceeded anyway. Uh, and not only that, there's a, a pretty uh, interesting detail in here that's not getting much press coverage, that um, if you're uh, familiar with Crossfire Hurricane, that started... That was the investigation into the Trump-Russia collusion that started July 31st, 2016. Uh, then only three days later, three or four days later, on August 3rd, uh, 2016, uh, John Brennan met with Barack Obama and told him that he had intelligence, and this is the only intelligence he had about what the Russians were doing. <laughs> he said, the Russians know that there's a Hillary Clinton-backed campaign to smear Trump as a Russian agent. And so, <laughs> basically, that means from the beginning of Crossfire Hurricane, both Barack Obama and John Brennan knew that Hillary Clinton was preparing to make this accusation against Trump, and they knew that the Russians knew what Hillary Clinton was doing, which is kind of suspicious. It's like, how, why, what are the, why are the Russians so cozy with the the inner workings of Hillary Clinton's mind, uh, but that there was actually never any evidence of anyone in the Trump campaign uh, working with Russia. John Brennan knew that, Barack Obama knew that, uh, Peter Strzok knew that, uh, and yet they continued with this investigation, and uh, and as our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, wrote uh, a number of years ago now uh, in his article, Saving America from the Radical Left Temporarily, uh, Barack Obama met with his high-ranking security people uh, just before Trump took the oath of office, a couple weeks before, I think it was on January 5th, before Trump took the oath of office, looking for ways to continue this crossfire hurricane investigation after Trump took the oath of office, uh, which is really treasonous in the best of circumstances to have spy agencies subversively spying on your boss. Once Trump took the oath of office, he was their boss. So he's spying on their boss. That's so really treasonous activity. It's like maybe, <laughs> maybe some people might want to turn a blind eye to that if they actually did have good evidence that their boss was a Russian agent. Although now we know that, like, yeah, everyone in the room knew that he wasn't a Russian agent and this was uh, just an overtly campaign to, uh, to take down a president of the sitting president of the United States on false charges. 
and we're used to the two political sides battling it out, but this is a major and egregious problem when someone, when a, the political party that wins the power of the government uses the power of the government to spy on, to investigate uh, a political opponent. This crosses all kinds of lines, as you were mentioning there. So this new unclassified version of the Durham report states that Barack Obama was spying on a presidential candidate who became the president-elect and sitting president, and that spying continued. Uh, as you said, they there was a meeting there in the White House in the Oval Office to establish how to continue that investigation into uh, President Trump. That's remarkable in itself. And now we know, and we have known, but now the Durham report uh, reiterates that there was no legal basis. There was no evidence uh, to continue that investigation. And yet that investigation and that spying continued. So, Andrew, what's the larger significance of this and where can people turn for more information? Yeah, uh, well, we definitely, and it seems like we're advertising this uh, every every program now. Uh, put our editor in chief books, America Under Attack, in the show notes. Uh, I think I've seen somebody with the new hardcover of that recently. So we we do have a new expanded hardcover uh, of that that's uh, more recent than any version you may have gotten before, with more information, especially on Trump exposing election fraud. Uh, but there's there's numerous prophecies, um, numerous prophecies that really show the um, the significance of what this Durham report is uh, is exposing. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind right off the top of my head is in um, Amos one, I think is versus not sorry. I am going to talk about Amos in a minute. This is an Isaiah one verses uh, like five through seven, or five through eight, uh, that talks about uh, just there being the go the head, the head, the head or the government of end time Israel being just like full of putrefying sores and um, and pus and <laughs> uh, just other disgusting uh, types of corruption uh, from head to toe. Uh, so from head to toe, so, so it's really the entire body of ancient Israel, but it starts in the the head, which is referring to uh, the government structure of the United States. And so when you see something like this, where the CIA was in on this, and the FBI was in on this, and uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign was in on this, and the DNC was in on this, and um, I think Mr. Flurry makes a point in his book where he's like said, really, it's almost like Donald Trump was kind of like the only person not in on this. Uh, the other prophecy I was going to talk, like in Second Kings uh, fourteen twenty six, that talks about the affliction of Israel, uh, and there was no helper, so God had to raise up a Jeroboam type figure. So that phrase "no helper" uh, highlights the fact that like everyone was in on this except Trump, uh, and that affliction is uh, is talking about the same type of stuff that Isaiah is talking about when it talks about the uh, just no soundness in the the head of Israel. And then uh, since I slipped up and mentioned Amos earlier, uh, well, the, I was thinking of uh, Amos uh, 7 and verse 8 that talks about God passing by Israel. He gets a plumb line, he measures it, and he passes by it one last time, uh, but then mentions to Amos in the, the verse that he's, uh, this is the last time he's going to do this. Uh, 
which would show that uh, you've got this type of <laughs> you've got this type of affliction where the CIA and everything's like rigging elections and targeting a sitting president. Is it really takes kind of taking a miracle to save to save a nation from that sort of thing, a miracle or a civil war? Uh, because uh, yeah, it's you, when you've got that much power right against the people, uh, it's not easy to to root out. Uh, but God does promise he'll uh, expose that, and uh, this Durham report is kind of the beginning of exposing that, which is kind of a miraculous report even uh, of itself in that like, neither Bill Barr nor uh, John Durham are like diehard Trump supporters <laughs> uh, by any means, uh, but still with enough integrity to let us know this is happening. So that's the John Durham Report, the top story from Anglo-America. Thank you for that update, Andrew Miller. And we are expecting America under attack any minute, actually, at our mail facility. 25,000 copies of that hardback version, as you mentioned. It's the third edition of ATK, and it's the eighth printing, in fact. It's been printed eight times. Uh, And those verses you mentioned are included in America Under Attack and applied by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry to Barack Obama and Donald Trump. So if you haven't uh, already requested America Under Attack, you can do that at thetrumpet.com. We'll now go over to Jeremiah Jacques to bring us, as he has for several years now, the top stories from the Asia region. Yes, one big one is that Russia and India are settling more and more of their trade in the Indian rupee. These two countries are doing just a great deal of trade lately, and they want to do really everything they can to bypass the U.S. dollar to kind of put a dent in the dollar's hegemony. So the rupee is now emerging as an alternative to the dollar in Russia-India trade. And that's just, of course, the latest in a long list of measures that nations like Russia have taken against the greenback in recent months. So looks like some real momentum may be building there. Another big story is about China's Belt and Road Initiative, or as some analysts are now calling it, the Bait and Rob Initiative. Because, you know, it turned out that many of these deals that China worked out with poor nations were predatory. And they've left these nations just reeling under crippling debt. A new report by the AP this week found that Pakistan, Kenya, Zambia, Laos, Mongolia, and half a dozen other poor countries are now facing economic instability and possibly even collapse under the weight of these massive loans that they're unsure how to repay. And uh, this situation may well go for many of them the way that it went for Sri Lanka a couple of years ago. Sri Lanka ended up having to give China a controlling stake in some of its really critical infrastructure, a major port, just to pay for the loans that China had given to it. So, you know, it's uh, it's bad news for many poor countries, but it could be very good news for China in its goal of expanding its global power. Another story... It may seem kind of small, but I think it's a bit of a bellwether for bigger trends. And that is that a comedian in China was arrested this week for telling a joke that compared the uh, the slogan. Well, he applied the slogan of the Chinese military to the behavior of his dogs. It was actually the most harmless 
imaginable comparisons, zero malice, not even any irreverence, but he was arrested and he's now facing prison time. So, you know, this is the world we live in. In the West, we have freedom. We have freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and that ends up leading to the most perverse kinds of entertainment, which is designed in many cases to make the people detest their own countries, to poison their thinking with just hatred for any kind of law or tradition. That's what we have in the U.S. and other Western nations. But then the alternative is China where the most innocuous joke that's already gone through, you know, five levels of self-censorship is still enough to offend these tyrannical overlords with their immense power and their stunningly thin skin. One final development I'll mention here is Bakhmut. Bakhmut, Ukraine. This has been the location of the longest battle and the bloodiest battle of the Russian war on Ukraine. It's been raging there for about 10 months. You know, we've seen phosphorus bombs. We've seen hand-to-hand bayonet combat. Of course, we've seen um, meat waves. These are the attempts by Russia to just overwhelm the defenders with sheer numbers of poorly trained, poorly armed soldiers. That's been one of Russia's main tactics in Bakhmut. But this week, after 10 months of fighting, the Russians started to retreat. Both the Ukrainian forces and even Russia's own Wagner Group, which has kind of been on the vanguard there, have reported that Russia is on the back foot and it's backing out of this region that it tried so hard to conquer. Um, Now, the Russians are still holding their ground in Bakhmut's city center. And they're still actually moving into the center a little deeper, inch by inch at staggeringly high costs. But Ukraine is pushing back in all the peripheral areas. And that push is crumbling the flanks of the Russian forces. So it's actually leaving the Russians boxed in and maybe soon surrounded. So, you know, nothing is finalized, but this could well mean that many, many Russians will remain locked down in Bakhmut just in time for Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive to begin in other parts of the country. So a lot to keep an eye on there. Right. Russia and India bypassing the dollar, that that Belt and Road Initiative in China, which we really need to keep an eye on. That is an enormous thing to keep an eye on for three or four major reasons. Uh, that comedian point is a really interesting one. I read that China has a 99% conviction rate once you do get arrested, yeah. the, the hope is not good for you, uh, even if you're a comedian. Uh, and then Russia, and you retreat, then Russia in retreat in Ukraine. Um, I read uh, the, the report that said that Putin has been laying some rhetorical and strategic groundwork for months now for the possible use of nuclear weapons. So if you box, as, as you said, if, if Russia gets boxed into a, the corner, uh, there's no telling what, what world we will uh, be living in if he presses that button. What's the main story that you want us to focus on from Asia? It is that uh, China said on Tuesday that it's ready to smash Taiwan. This was a statement released by China's defense ministry, and the wording here is quite cutting. It says, quote, China's People's Liberation Army continues to strengthen military training and preparations and will resolutely smash any form of Taiwanese independence, along with attempts at outside interference. China will resolutely defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity, end quote. So, you know, it's hard to imagine a more, I think, a more resolute kind of statement than that. China is prepared to resolutely smash any form of independence. And this statement comes mainly in response to Taiwan's main ally, the United States, stepping up its support for Taiwan, which is something that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke about on Tuesday. We're deepening deepening our ties with ASEAN and the Quad, and I'm pleased that the United States will soon provide 
significant additional security assistance to, to Taiwan through the Presidential Drawdown Authority that Congress authorized last year. So Lloyd Austin there mentioned two different international groups. ASEAN is a political bloc of 10 Southeast Asian nations. Uh, these countries work together basically just so they can stand up or have some prayer of standing up to the Chinese dragon that dominates their neighborhood. And as Austin said there, the U.S. is deepening ties with them. The other group that he talked about was the Quad, or the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. That's the U.S., Australia, India, and Japan. This group's whole purpose is really to try to stop China from dominating all of Asia. And it's become a, a really a formidable force throughout Asia, especially over the last four or five years. And a huge part of the Quad's mission is to prevent a Chinese takeover of democratic Taiwan. So the Chinese, of course, loathe these groups at you know a visceral level. And as Austin mentioned there, besides shoring up ties within these blocks, the U.S. is also directly arming Taiwan. The defense package that he mentioned is uh, the biggest weapons package that America has ever sold to Taiwan. So it's uh, just a gargantuan weapons deal, and it comes at the same time that the U.S. is trying to just, you know, heal these old wounds and create and deepen alliances in Asia, all to try to build up a coalition to be ready to defend Taiwan. So that's why China is so livid this week. That's why they're throwing this big temper tantrum. That's why they're saying that they're determined to smash all of these kinds of efforts into oblivion. So where would you direct our listeners for a little more depth on the importance of this particular issue? It's actually uh, quite an older article by now by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's called Taiwan Betrayal, written all the way back in 1998. Um, but it's an interesting article that just takes on more and more relevance all the time. Because, you know, these kinds of arms sales by the U.S. and these attempts to build coalitions to protect Taiwan, I think it's encouraging to see it you know, from the from the standpoint of standing up for freedom and democracy. But in that article, Mr. Fleury said that eventually, despite any such efforts, we should expect China to seize Taiwan. He's he's made that forecast for all these years based on his understanding of Bible prophecy, and specifically a passage in the book of Leviticus about America having its pride and its power broken. That's in chapter 26. And it's a passage that Mr. Fleury has been applying to the China-US-Taiwan dynamic for all these years now. His first time came, as I said, in 1998. That was just after US President Bill Clinton had made a statement really opposing Taiwanese independence. And Mr. Fleury at that time, he wrote, The Chinese leaders pressured the president and America to speak out against our freedom-loving friends before the whole world, and the people of Taiwan feel betrayed. Skipping down a little, he says, How could anyone fail to see that Taiwan is destined to become a part of mainland China? It's going to happen for one reason, because of a pitifully weak-willed America. Does freedom really mean so little to us? End quote. So, you know, I think on one hand, it is encouraging to see America trying to build a coalition with Quad and ASEAN and, and others to protect Taiwan and, and selling these armaments. But really, those efforts will not be enough to repair America's broken will or to really deter China's takeover. That's Taiwan betrayal from the Philadelphia Trumpet back in 1998, back in the Clinton administration. The Trumpet has been around for more than 30 years and you can find those uh, old issues and those old articles on thetrumpet.com. Thank you, Mr. Jacques. Trumpet Hour listeners, do keep an eye on American news on Barack Obama and Donald Trump, but do not ignore Asia nor Europe. Richard Palmer, what's the main news from Europe this week? 
Last week, we talked about some agricultural news from the Netherlands. We've got a bit more of that this week. The Dutch are putting in place a two-cow limit, uh, or at least two cows per football pitch-sized area. Uh, so more Dutch war on agriculture. Portugal is voting to legalize euthanasia, or the parliament has voted, so that's in the process of becoming law. Another country um, starting to begin to uh, al allow doctors to, to help kill people. And uh, a lot of the other news of that we've got from Europe this week is financial. So Elon Musk met with Emmanuel Macron and other leaders in Europe as Europe looks to kind of uh, try and um, carve out a space for itself in the high tech industry. Related to that, Europe has passed some of the world's first uh, regulation of the crypto asset market, trying to bring in um, you know, more regulation of things like Bitcoin and complicated cryptocurrencies, uh, but also you know, some of these um, also paving the way to things like central bank digital currencies and things that can lead to much more government involvement in the economy. So that's something interesting to watch. Our main story today also revolves around the economy. Right now, the G7 uh, group of world leaders is meeting in Japan. And a lot of talk here at the G7 revolves around sanctions. There's talk about Russian sanctions. There's another round of Russian sanctions announced. It seems pretty easy to get people to agree to Russian sanctions at this point uh, because people are kind of used to them and they're not super effective. Uh, like we talked about on a, a recent show, people go around them pretty easily. Uh, so the, there's, a, there's more of those. What is the biggest sticking point and conversation point is sanctions on China. There's a lot of pressure coming from the United States for Europe to join some of their sanctions on China and a lot of resistance from China to do that. So Germany's Handelsblatt uh, news magazine is saying that they've got a story about the US putting enormous pressure on Germany, France and Italy to kind of fall into line so they can have announced this G7 sanctions against China. There's The US has put a high-performance semiconductor ban uh, on China. They leaned very heavily on the Netherlands to put that into place. There's uh, some pretty critical, uh, I think they make silicon wafers for, for um, transistors and this kind of thing in the Netherlands. But uh, Germany also exports chemicals that are used in chip manufacturing. They're leaning heavily on Germany to ban those exports. Uh, German diplomats, they're telling Handelsblatt, they're saying the U.S. is putting unbearable pressure on every single meeting, that China dominates everything, uh, that they want China named as something, as a country that uses economic blackmail. But Germany, France and Italy, they're pushing back on this. They're not at all uh, happy to go along with these sanctions on China. So you're seeing uh, potentially a dividing line now opening up when it comes to the G7, when it comes to the Western economies over China. Yes, we'll all agree to sanction Ukraine, but Europe is not going to get on board with sanctions on China. Now, I think this is very revealing about Europe's attitude to China. I think it's still possible that they'll cave in. And America has a lot of financial power. And, and th with the current financial system and the way it is configured, all revolving around the dollar, uh, there is a lot of pressure that America can can bring to bear on France, Germany, Italy. And maybe over the course of the weekend, they will turn around and they will go along with, with what America is doing. 
But the fact that they're kind of putting up a fight, they're very reluctant. If they do go along, they will have been dragged kicking and streaming along. I think that is is very significant. And it's a strong signal of this divide between the United States and Europe. And you've pointed out a new article in the brand new edition of The Trumpet that our listeners can take advantage of to understand this better. That's right. Uh, it's called Breathing Fire on the Transatlantic Alliance by by uh, Jeremiah Jacques and Joshua Michels. And I think just even from that title, the cover illustration that I, I hadn't really seen before um, the last couple of days as, as, I, as the trumpet goes to print, uh, it really does a good job of setting up the drama of what is happening here. I mean, talking about sanctions on lithio- lithiograph machines is not particularly exciting. Uh but this is a huge story, and I think this article does a good job of explaining that, that this is about a fundamental break between you know, NATO, the West, this block that has kind of been viewed as one unified, homogenous alliance, and really America's assumptions that underpin world peace and its role in the world you know, rest on that worldview. And what we're seeing is that dividing and Europe saying, you know what, actually, if we're having to pick between the United States and China, we're picking China. And even Taiwan that we heard about from Jeremiah comes up in this article because France very conspicuously, when Emmanuel Macron went to China, very conspicuously refused to give the same kind of answer to America and say, well, America may stand up to China on Taiwan. We're not going to. I mean, that's that's not a much of an exaggerated summary of what he said. Uh, so you're seeing this this shift, and that on its own, I think, is, is epoch-making. And then you bring into the in the Bible prophecy, and, well, now you see that in, a, in an even bigger picture because this epoch-making shift is exactly prophesied. Isaiah 23 talks about a, a mod of nations, a trading alliance of nations, and it uses symbolic language, but you look at who these different nations are in Bible prophecy, and, and this article goes through some of that, it's talking about European powers and chi- and China and and Japan, the Asian powers, trading together, forming a, their own trading alliance. And then there's other prophecies like Deuteronomy 28, I think it's verse 52, that talks about America uh, being besieged, Britain being besieged. So they they kind of form their own trading relationship, their own even economic system. They get rid of this dollar-based economic system and use this new system to shut America out to do to America what America is trying to do to China. So when you see Europe turning on America uh, over these sanctions, it's it's you're seeing the early days of this Bible prophecy being fulfilled. And it's a, a fantastic opportunity to watch Bible prophecy be fulfilled in, in real time and just uh, see the power of the Bible to describe your life and, and the events around you. And, and that article that goes through all of that, that's breathing fire on the transatlantic alliance. Breathing Fire on the Transatlantic Alliance at thetrumpet.com, also available in yesterday's Trumpet Brief for those of you who subscribe. If you don't, go to thetrumpet.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter. Thank you, Mr. Palmer, for that update on Europe, showing us how to keep an eye on Europe, building its power and watching how it uses it as it carves out its own financial power, its own diplomacy, its own independence, and even opposition to the United States. Josue Michels, you are one of the authors of that article that Mr. Palmer just mentioned. You watch Germany, your homeland, and Europe, and you write about it, and you present a video podcast about it. In fact, as we can see there with your new setup here in the studio. Today, you're filling in for Mihailo Zekic, though, to bring us the top developments in the Middle East. 
Yes, the Middle East is not too far from Germany, so I have to keep an eye on that a little bit too. And some of the stories actually directly connect to Germany today. There are a lot of stories about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that's because March 15th marked the 75th anniversary of so-called Palestinian displacement. And this year was actually the first time that the United Nations officially commemorated that day as well. That just shows that the whole world, presented by the United Nations, many countries, many powerful countries in that United Nations represent the world, and they are on the side of the Palestinians. They are showing the Palestinian suffering. And there was also a survey on that day talking about how Germany sees that conflict. And most Germans say that Israel is at the wrong side of this conflict and that the Palestinians are suffering. That same weekend there were rocket strikes and it was actually the Palestinians that broke a ceasefire. But of course, any time Israel strikes back, they have a more powerful military. So there are more casualties on the Palestinian side. So the world looks on Israel as the aggressor. But there were also some major geopolitical events. For example, Russia and Iran made a major deal that we will talk later more about. And also a very interesting event happened with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. You will remember that there has been a raging civil war in Syria. But now Saudi Arabia invited Assad back for a very important summit. And you can read more about that on our website. But that just shows that Saudi Arabia wants to pull Syria away from Iran. So we really see a shift in alliances here in the Middle East that really needs to be watched. Another week of turmoil in the Middle East. And there will be a week wherein it really spills over. What's your perspective on what the most important Middle East event this week is to drill down into a little more deeply? Yes, in my opinion, it was the Turkish presidential election because Turkey is a major country in the Middle East that connects to Europe, it connects to Asia, and it's a NATO member. But recently, it hasn't really been acting like a NATO member. It made major deals with Russia. It's closely aligned with Iran. It sends troops to Syria. So many hoped, well, we need a change in the Turkish leadership. So they really put high stakes in the Turkish opposition, but then the election came around. The service even showed beforehand that President Erdogan might be losing that election, but then he did better than it was originally assumed. And I actually have a quote here from Dr. James Dorsey, senior fellow at the S. Regidum School of International Studies. He said the following to CNA. I think that we all expected that there would be a runoff. What I think was uh, not expected was that the gap between uh, Erdogan and Kilic Darolu, the opposition candidate, would be as large as it was. It was expected that it would be uh, uh, a neck-to-neck race. Uh, Sinan Oan, the third candidate, is at this moment undeclared in who he will support in a runoff. But given his background and given his ambitions, he comes out of the MHP, the uh, a nationalist party and a coalition party of Erdogan's, and he has been wanting to become the leader of that party, it's more likely that his voters are going to opt for Erdogan than for Kilic Darolu. So here we see that he is, Erdogan is in a much powerful position that people hoped, and there are going to be runoff elections, and there is a good chance that he will be winning those runoff elections. 
And it's also interesting to see how the opposition reacted to those election results, because beforehand the main opposition, he was trying to showcase that Erdogan is a dictator. He tries to destroy democracy and freedom. And in many ways, that's true. Erdogan is arresting journalists and he is having a strong control of the state media. But after the election, the main opposition was like, okay, we need to act stronger. We need to speak against refugees. We have to hit a table instead of showing a heart with our hands. Because the Turkish people, they want a strong leader. They want one that's aggressive. And actually, a survey last year showed that Turkey is the second angriest country in the world. So they want an angry president, apparently, and Erdogan is just the one they want. So a lot of us are less familiar with Erdogan and Turkey and uh, the developments there. What should our Trumpet Hour listeners be looking for to come out of this? Yeah, there are actually some major prophecies that guide us. Now, the Trumpet is open to who might win those one-off elections, but there are also some indications where Turkey will go into the future, what they will be doing in the future. And that is a prophecy in Psalm 83 and in Obatia, that whole little book, obscure book in the Old Testament, some would say, is about Edom, Esau, which is modern-day Turkey. There's a, that's a dual prophecy, as our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Louis, explains in his booklet with the same title, Obatia. But that booklet and the prophecy the prophecies of the Old Testament show that Turkey will be betraying America, Britain, and Israel. Erdogan has done that in many ways, so it's likely that he could continue that, or whoever else might be replacing him will continue that same stance. They are part of NATO, but they are prophesied to betray that alliance, and specifically the United States. And that prophecy in Psalm 83 actually gives us even more clues on how Turkey will act in the future. It talks about an alliance against Israel and it also shows who will be in that alliance. Syria will be in that alliance, other Arab countries, but also Germany and Europe. And Erdogan has been receiving German weaponry in the past. He has been actually one of the main recipients of German weaponry. And he used those weapons to get control over Syria. And our editor-in-chief has said that Turkey will break a different stance in Syria that will actually break its alliance with Iran. So there are lots of prophecies to watch here. But Turkey is a major player. So those booklets really explain how that will unfold. So Turkey came from somewhere, and this booklet asserts that it came from Edom and that there is a forecast in there about the descendants of Edom in the 21st century. So you can find some of that in the booklet Obadiah on the trumpet.com, as well as just focusing in on Turkey itself, Pivotal Power. That's an article, Pivotal Power at the trumpet.com. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, shipments of tons and tons and tons and tons of goods between Russia and Iran and why it matters. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, Trumpet Hour listeners. This is Philip Nice, and this is Trumpet Hour Week in Review. For the last portion of the program, we'd like to dwell on one development that is certainly not the lead story on Fox News or CNN or anywhere else right now, but is nonetheless a major development. Jeremiah Jacques, can you tell us the who, what, when, and where? Yeah, sure. It was on Wednesday of this week that Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Iranian counterpart, Ibrahim Raisi, held a meeting. And this was essentially the signing ceremony for a new railway called the Rasht Astara Railway. Uh, It's called the Rasht Astara because those are the two cities that it connects. Rasht is an Iranian city in the north of the country. It lies on the southern edge of the Caspian Sea. And then the city of Astara is also in northern Iran, even further to the north, right on the border with Azerbaijan. And Astara also lies on the coast of the Caspian, but more on the, the western part of it. So these these two Iranian cities, they're not terribly far apart. It's almost exactly 100 miles between them. So this railway... You know, it may not sound that impressive if you just look at it in isolation, but really this Rasht Astara airway is just one small part of a much larger project. It's it's kind of a, you could think of this as the last piece of the puzzle for what's called the International North-South Transport Corridor. So this entire corridor, it's more than 4,400 miles long. And it's all about connecting Russia to India through Central Asia. So the Rasht Astara Railway, it's right in the center of all that. And this particular section of the overall corridor has long stalled for years and years. It's been kind of frozen. But now Putin has stepped in and he says that Russia is going to be investing about $1.7 billion into laying this final 100 miles of rail. And I've got a quote here from the Financial Tribune. This article says, Presently, the 100-mile Rashtastara Railroad is the only remaining rail section of the International North-South Transport Corridor and the missing link for the direct rail link from the Persian Gulf to Moscow and St. Petersburg. So completion of the Rashtastara Rail Project is extremely significant. End quote. So, you know, there you have it. This may be just 100 miles out in kind of an obscure part of the world that we seldom think about. But since it is kind of the the final puzzle piece, and since it involves tons of goods being shipped, it is extremely significant. And that's why this project is uh, sometimes being branded as an alternative to the Suez Canal. An alternative to the Suez Josue Michels, you've been watching the Middle East, and this, of course, links the Middle East, links Iran to to Russia. Uh, what are your thoughts on the significance of this particular project? Yeah, it's very important for Russia, obviously, but it's also very important for Iran because Iran, like Russia, has been very much sanctioned by the West, and they need new ways of having trade relationships with other countries and with other countries that are not part of the Western system. And they themselves have plans, which recent actions have showed that they actually want to block off some of those sea roads. So they want to present an alternative to them that they can control kind of the trade flow. So that's very important for Iran. That way that they can no longer be sanctioned as they have been right now. They have been sanctioned mainly because of their nuclear program and they have no indication that there's no indication that they want to stop that nuclear program. They want to get nuclear weapons, but in order to be able to do that, they want to have more alliances. That's part of a bigger trend here. And for that, they increasingly look to Russia. In fact, the US State Department has put out a statement 
that they are the main supporter for Russia's war in Ukraine, and I have a clip about that right here. The, the crux of this is, is that Iran remains Russia's top military backer, and Iran has already provided Russia with artillery and tank rounds for use in Ukraine. Uh, Iran also continues to provide Russia with one-way attack UAVs. Since August, and this is something that we've talked about last year as well, Iran has provided Russia with more than 400 UAVs, primarily of the Shahid variety, and Russia has expended most of these UAVs, using them to target Ukrainian critical infrastructure inside Ukraine. Uh, but broadly, the deepening of this cooperation is, uh, is a threat and a danger to not just Ukraine, it's a threat and a danger to uh, Russia's neighbors, Iran's neighbors, and the international community broadly. So we're seeing that they are supporting Russia in this major way and Russia really appreciates that and is willing to invest more in Iran for as a return, giving back, so to say. Yeah, it's just a fascinating story from a lot of different, uh, a lot of different angles. One of the biggest things Russia's trying to do on the international scene right now in terms of uh, how America's involved is their fight against the dollar. Uh, Russia's, I mean, working with Brazil and China and a bunch of other nations to try basically strip the dollar of its reserve currency status one nation at a time by getting them to trade in local currencies. Uh, it was actually not long ago, earlier this year, back in April, I think it was, that uh, Russian and Iranian officials uh, actually met with Russian presidential aide Igor Levitin going to Iran for a two-day trip to talk with the secretary of Iran's Supreme National Council. Uh, and discuss ways to thwart Western sanctions. Uh, came up with many ways, but this uh, this pipeline, uh, not this pipeline, but this railroad, this trade corridor, is um, really a big way to do that. I mean, I've seen a lot, a number of headlines comparing it almost like an alternative to the uh, Suez Canal, where right now, like oil and a lot of trade goods, if they're coming from Iran to Russia or someplace in Europe. It's going out the Straits of Hormuz, around Arabia, up through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, into the Dardanelles, into the Black Sea, where now you've actually got like a straight <laughs> uh, a straight hit. So if uh, a Western nation like the United States wants to try to sanction some of those marine trade routes or ships and stuff like that, if you just take it up through this railroad straight uh, up through the Caucasus into to Russia, uh, then that's uh, a bilateral means between Iran and Russia and you can uh, you can circumvent US influence in that type of a matter. And that's what I really want to talk about uh, here just stepping back a bit putting some of it in a, in a in a in a big picture. I want to talk about international relations theory which we don't normally do on this show but I think this one is pretty mind blowing. It kind of over, really overturned my think thinking about a whole lot of history and i think it really helps emphasize the importance of these kind of infrastructure projects uh it was first written i think about 1904 by the the english geographer sir halford mckinder in his paper the, the geographic pivot of world history and to I me mean, it answered one of the biggest questions that i have about history that you pick up a book on ancient history and everything that you read about will be in or near the middle east and then you pick up a book about anything from late antiquity onwards, the Middle Ages, uh, and you can be almost certain it will not be about the Middle East 
and those places near you know why why the world revolved around babylon and persia and egypt and even greece uh, and the biggest part the richest part of the roman empire was the middle east you know this was the center of the world and then for the last 500 years it's they're mostly irrelevant i mean if it weren't for oil who cares about the middle east and when was the last time a middle eastern power was the world ruling empire and I could never really make sense of this. How does this region just go from the most important part of the world to towards the bottom of the list really suddenly? And what Sir Halford McKinder does is he said, well, they were the, they were the center of the world because they're, the, they're kind of the center of Eurasia geographically. They're at this crossroads. And in the ancient world, that's critical. That means that they're at the center of world trade. They're also at the center when it comes to military maneuverability. Their armies travel shorter distances to reach just about everywhere. Other countries have to go kind of around the long way. They have shorter routes to everywhere. And so you have the dominant trade empires, the dominant military empires. They're all in the Middle East. And then you have this, this phrase that Mackinder coins, the Colombian Epoch that you have Christian Christopher Columbus and others, you know, you've got Francis Drake and Ferdinand Magellan and, and all these others. Uh, and suddenly the Middle East is no longer the quickest way to project military power or to, to trade. The oceans are. And it's almost like you flick a switch and you start getting power. You know, it's Portugal. It's the Portuguese empire that starts dominating the world. And the Spanish, you know, the places that have been irrelevant for all of mankind's history until now, the Dutch, they, they just they're not going to war with cows they're taking over the world um you know, these naval powers start to be the world empires and france becomes one of these dominant powers and then britain you know the french the, the french empire the french naval powers wiped out at the battle of trafalgar and for the next 200 years it's the english-speaking nations that dominate the world because they dominate sea trade and so fundamentally what a lot of these you know, infrastructure projects, whether they're Chinese, whether they're Russian, whether they're Iranian, is designed to undo this and to go back to the way the world was before Columbus in certain respects. And this is so this is this is this is why the Berlin to Baghdad railway was a big deal in the run up to World War One, because Germany saw going toe to toe with the Royal Navy is really hard. If we build trade links overland, the Royal Navy can't reach us. This is why when you listen to Chinese academics talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, it's not about business proposition. They say it's about undoing the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, you know, they see it in a much, much bigger picture. And this is what you'll see. This exactly as Andrew talks about. You know, the, Royal, the, the, the U.S. Navy is mind-bogglingly powerful in many ways. But they can't stop a train in the middle of Kazakhstan. You know, this is a way of kind of trying to negate U.S. sea power. And so you, this is why China builds a massive navy at the same time that they're working on these these rail links. They're, they're behaving the same way that the Kaiser did in the run up to World War One. It, it's not about trade. It's about world dominion. That's right. And, and trade feeds into world dominion in such a such a huge way. You mentioned sea gates and, and trade routes generally. And uh, rather than, whether they go over the ocean or over land, uh, they are what a lot of wars are fought over and fought as a result of uh, one ton of goods can move 576 miles on one gallon of fuel if you're on a ship. One ton, 576 miles. One ton of goods can go 520 miles in a train. 
So trains are pretty efficient. You compare that to a semi truck, it's 175. So trains and ships are three to four times more efficient at moving all those goods and people want goods. And when people don't get goods, sometimes they uh, declare war. Uh, so with that in mind, Jeremiah, you've been watching Asia and uh, you, what in, in more uh, immediate terms, what does this mean for uh, the Asian powers? Yeah, well, you know, we, we spoke in the first half just briefly about trade between Russia and India, you know, how that's really surging in some sectors, and they're actually figuring out ways to bypass the dollar and instead use the rupee for some of that trade. And really, this new railway is very much related to that. This is foundational for that kind of trade and for the efforts to boost it. This project gives Russia access to India and those 1.4 billion potential consumers there. And and from there, it gives Russia access to the Indian Ocean and, you know, global shipping, uh, as Mr. Palmer was just talking about. So this could, it could really be a lifeline to Russia's heavily sanctioned economy in many ways. It could give them new links. That's why I think Putin is willing to spend $1.7 billion during a time when his coffers are basically empty in order to bring this to life. This also helps Russia just to have more influence uh, politically speaking, over India. You know, Russia is selling the Indians a huge percentage of their oil now. And with that comes an increased Russian ability to sway India, to pressure them into ignoring, you know, U.S. influence. And it's not just India. The larger project here, this uh, international north-south transport corridor, it connects Russia also to Azerbaijan, to Iran, as we've said, also to Central Asia. So it'll help the Russians to have more political power and influence over this entire region. And from Bible prophecy, and especially passages in Revelation and Ezekiel, we are expecting Russia to have more and more influence over these nations and to eventually lead them, uh, with the exception of Iran, into a global war. So how do you build a mind-boggling navy, a mind-boggling industry, mind-boggling wealth, mind-boggling military? How do you become one of the world's richest men in some cases? It's just what we're talking about. You get goods from one place to another. So pay attention to trade routes, trumpet our listeners, pay attention to sea gates, to belts and roads, and to railways, and we will keep you updated. Well, thank you, Mr. Palmer, Mr. Jacques, Mr. Miller, and Mr. Michels for serving as our panel this week. Listeners, please do email us your thoughts on the program to letters at the trumpet.com. What do you think about sea gates and trade routes and railroads? Uh, let us know with letters at the trumpet.com. We thank Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production as always. And we thank you for joining us, Trumpet Hour listeners, here on Trumpet Hour Week in Review.